Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello. And welcome to New Books in Native American Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stephen Hausman. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Michaela Adams, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Mississippi and the author of Who Belongs? Race, Resources, and Tribal Sovereignty in the Native South, which was published in 2016 by Oxford University Press. Michaela, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much, Steve. I'm delighted to be here and to have the opportunity to talk a little bit more about Who Belongs. Why don't we start by having you just talk a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got involved in professional history in the first place? Great. Okay. Um, Well, um, as you mentioned, I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of Mississippi in Oxford, Mississippi currently. Um, I teach courses on Native American history as well as American medical history and U.S. history since Reconstruction. Um, I went to graduate school at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, uh, where I studied under the direction of Dr. Theodore Perdue and Dr. Mike Green who are sort of prominent scholars um, on the Native Southeast. So I was really fortunate to be able to study with them. Um, But my undergraduate career began at Miami University in Ohio, and that's actually where I sort of uh, fell in love with Native American history for the first time um, after taking a course with Dr. Daniel Cobb on Native North America. Um, And this is really when I first became sort of fascinated and interested by Native American history and was really first exposed to Native American history. Um, Like many Americans, Um, I hadn't had very much prior experience or or knowledge of Native history um, before going to college. Um, Most high school classes don't talk about Native history very much. It's sort of seen as almost like a backdrop to the the main event, the main story of Anglo history. Um, When I took Dr. Cobb's class, I realized that this was a very inaccurate view of the American past. And in fact, Native people have always been part of the American story from pre-contact all the way to the present day and are a really vital part of the American story. And so after taking that class, um, I decided that, that I wanted to keep learning about Native American history. I wanted to pursue that history and understand the position of American Indians in this broader American story. And so that's more or less what I've been doing ever since. Um, I you know, go, went to graduate school for that purpose and, and continued to teach and, and research uh, for that purpose. Um, and so I guess the other thing to say is that my book, uh, Who Belongs?, it, which came out in 2016, 
uh, explores tribal citizenship in the southeast. It looks at how these six southeastern tribes historically decided who belonged to their communities. Uh, in particular, I examine how the context of the Jim Crow South affected uh, tribal citizenship decisions um, in, those, in those years. How did you land on that topic in particular? Because in your introduction, where you lay out your kind of your central organizing question, um, it suddenly is so apparent to me that it's a really good question, and I can't believe that it hadn't been thought of or asked in a similar way before. So, how did you land on it? Yeah, well, I guess there's a short answer and a long answer. Um, the short answer is that the the book grew out of my doctoral work at UNC, um, so it's a revision and expansion of my dissertation. Um, and the long answer is that I, I've always been interested in these issues of citizenship and identity and belonging, um, just kind of based on my own personal history and background. Um, I, I'm an American citizen, but I actually grew up mostly in Europe. Um, my father was a research scientist, and he had taken a, a number of postdocs in England and France and Scotland, so I spent most of my childhood living in places where I was not a citizen. Um, and, and I felt, you know, that I belonged to these places. I had friends and community in these places, but I was not legally a member of these places. I, I didn't have that citizenship. And so a lot of my childhood was spent in embassies and, you know, getting passports and getting visas. And, and so a lot of my experience as a child was feeling somewhat like an outsider. Like I, although I, I felt the sense of community and belonging, I didn't actually belong to those places. And so when I began to study Native history in college, I was, I was very intrigued by the ways that Native people had defined their identity and their communities. And in particular, I, I was fascinated by these ideas of kinship um, and the ways that ideas of kinship uh, changed and were modified over time with ideas of race and also modified by new ideas of legal culture and relationships between tribes and the federal government in particular and how that changed over time. And so when I was looking for a dissertation topic, I was interested in all these questions, questions of identity, belonging, race, and citizenship. And my advisor, uh, Theda Purdue, suggested that I looked at, look at tribal citizenship in the South. Um, this hadn't been done before in a full-length study. Um, and so looking at the South provided sort of a region and also a time period, this late 19th century, early 20th century time period, to explore some of these questions that had always uh, interested me uh, in the questions of identity and citizenship and, and how those overlap. And a second ago, you mentioned the structure of your book. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about that, because you structured around the stories of particular Native tribes and nations in the American South, and many of them overlap chronologically. Um, could you tell us how you landed on yeah. that structure in particular? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so as I was writing my dissertation, I had initially considered uh, trying to organize the project um, thematically, so including cha chapters on topics like uh, race or residency or culture or blood quantum. Uh, to show how tribes address these these various uh, themes in common. Um, but as I was conducting the research, it quickly became apparent that uh, every tribe has a very unique story, and the decisions that tribes make about citizenship are very much tied to their individual historical experiences and their individual relationships with state and federal officials. So as I was writing the dissertation and then and then revising it to the book, I, I really didn't want to lose that uniqueness of experience. I wanted to highlight that American Indians are not a monolith, they're not an essentialized group or racialized group, but that different tribes make different decisions for different reasons. Um, so to do that, to, to show that um, uniqueness of experience, I decided to organize the book uh, as these tribal case studies, uh, looking at the Pamunkey Indian tribe in Virginia, the Catawba Indian Nation in South Carolina, the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians in Mississippi, um, the Eastern Band of Cherokees in North Carolina, and then the Seminole Tribe of Florida and the Miccosukee Band of Indians of Florida. And so through these uh, tribal case studies, uh, I'm able to 
then sort of highlight some important themes, but by looking at these particular tribes. And so, for example, the Pamunkey story uh, helps to highlight some of the racial pressures that tribes faced, uh, especially in the Jim Crow South. Um, they, you know, they were constantly concerned about um, preserving an Indian identity and, and, and maintaining that that legal political status as Indian. Uh, they were also, uh, at the time, only a state-recognized tribe. They did not, did not have federal, recogni- federal recognition until the 21st century, in fact. Um, and so that that um, their story also helps to highlight how different legal relationships between state and, and, and federal governments and, and, and tribes affect how tribes think about belonging. Um, the Catawba story uh, further explores those different relationships between state and federal governments since Tribes gained federal rec- uh, since the Catawba's tri- uh, sorry the Catawba tribe gained federal recognition for the first time um, in the 1940s. At which point, the federal government required that they develop an official tribal role. And so, by sort of looking at that transition from state recognition to federal recognition, I- I'm able to explore um, how the process of recognition affects how tribes define belonging. Uh, the Catawba story also highlights how residency factors into tribal citizenship um, because some Catawbas uh, end up migrating west in the, ni- in the late 19th century and, and losing their citizenship in the, the Catawba Nation in South Carolina. So that, that story kind of lets me look at some of those issues of residency and, and, and citizenship. Uh, then the Choctaw story in Mississippi helps to illuminate how tribes end up adopting and adapting federal concepts of Indianness and especially ideas of Indian blood in order to satisfy external expectations about their identity. Um, the, the Choctaws end up purposely conflating ideas of race and ideas, ideas of nation, uh, more or less as a strategy to, to rebuild a tribal identity in Mississippi af- after having lost uh, citizenship within the Choctaw Nation in Oklahoma. Uh, then the Cherokee story uh, kind of builds on that, but demonstrates that tribes do not adopt federal concepts of Indianness just blindly, but instead they engage in sort of very prolonged struggles over the meanings of citizenship, and they contest federal definitions of citizenship, and they, they develop their own ideas for their own purposes, with the ultimate goal of pres- preserving their sovereignty. And then finally, the, the Seminole and Miccosukee story, they help to connect um, tribal citizenship to ideas of self-determination by showing how Native peoples not only decided who belonged to their communities, but also decide what kind of tribe they want to belong to and what that, that sort of political entity is going to look like. They end up splitting into these, these two tribes, the Seminole tribe and the Miccosukee tribe. Um, so although there are sort of these, these tribal case studies, they do kind of, kind of highlight these, these broader themes and, and, and questions of tribal citizenship and self-determination. Well, let's get into the book in more detail then. Um, and you begin the, the story, you begin your argument with the story of Sharon Flora. Um, who was she and how does her story help to explain, uh, as you put it, what separates the racial identity of Indian from other racial identities in the United States? Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, Sharon Flora, she, she's a woman who um, writes into the Cherokee One Feather, which is the, uh, the official newspaper of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians uh, in the 1990s. And in this letter, she's, she's very frustrated because although she has Cherokee ancestors and she feels that she has a Cherokee cultural identity, she's not able to locate those ancestors on the official Cherokee tribal roles. And therefore, she does not legally have Cherokee citizenship despite um, feeling that she is Cherokee. And so she writes this very poignant letter um, and she talks about how she feels the same pride in her heart as other Cherokees about her Cherokee identity. She feels strongly that she's Cherokee in her heart. But because she lacks this official tribal citizenship, she's always on the outside looking in. And so I use this quote, this letter, as a starting point because I think it's, it's quite reflective of how many people feel in the United States. 
there are numerous people in the United States who have Indian ancestors, who, who have family stories of Native American heritage, and maybe even have cultural and community connections to a Native tribe, but don't have formal tribal citizenship. And this is very frustrating for them. And it raises a lot of questions about, you know, why? Why are some people tribal citizens and why are other, other people not tribal citizens? And what does it mean to have tribal citizenship and who gets to decide on these issues? Who gets to choose who belongs and who, who doesn't belong to a tribe? And so, so those are some of the questions that I try to answer in the book by historicizing tribal citizenship and providing a, an ethno-historical account of how these six tribes make those decisions. And I think what makes these questions uh, really complicated and I, I think also interesting is that Indian identity is not simply a racial or ethnic identity, but rather it's a, it's a political identity. So unlike other minority populations in the United States, groups like African-Americans, for example, or Latinos or Asian-Americans, who are often defined racially or ethnically, American Indians also have this unique legal status, which comes out of their belonging to tribal nations and the government-to-government relationship between those tribal nations and the United States. So although the term Indian does have these racial connotations, and it still has these racial connotations, especially sort of uh, popular conceptions of what Indian is, in fact, um, it's not simply a racial identity. It's a political and legal status as defined by citizenship within a tribe. And this comes out of, um, you know, long long ago practices of treaty making and this long history of colonialism and these legal relationships that were established historically between tribes and the federal government. Tell us about the Pamunkey people of what is today Virginia. Um, how is their relationship to colonial and later on to American state apparatuses different in certain respects from other people you describe? And what's their story? Great. Yeah. Um, okay. So like many people in the, in the South, many tribes in the South, uh, the Pamunkeys, um, more or less, they fall through the legal cracks of recognition. Um, so they had made treaties with the colony of Virginia in the 1600s, but they, they didn't make formal treaties with the United States after the American Revolution. And so what that meant was that they did not have a, a formal sort of federal recognition of their, their status as Indians. Um, and that, that persisted throughout the, the, the 19th and 20th centuries, the time period that I look at. Um, and so what this means is that they had a very precarious legal status. So Virginia recognized them as a state tribe, but there was always a threat that if white Virginians stopped seeing them as Indian, that they could lose that political identity and also potentially lose their reservation land, which was a state reservation. And the fear, the fear was that if, you know, if white people in the state stopped seeing them as Indians, then they would no longer tolerate them having this, this reservation land. So many of the decisions that the Pamunkeys end up making about tribal citizenship in the late 19th century and, and 20th centuries were specifically designed to shore up their Indian identity in the eyes of whites to kind of promote this idea that they were Indian, they were not, um, they were not colored, as, as the language of Jim Crow would, would, have, them, would have them be. Uh, and this, you know, especially becomes a problem uh, during the Jim Crow period with, you know, racial legislation, discrimination. And they find that uh, one of the best ways that they can um, you know, preserve their Indian identity during this period is to distance themselves from African Americans as a way to avoid being reclassified as colored in this biracial system of the South. Uh, so the Pamunkeys, they end up making a number of laws, uh, and particularly they pass a reservation law in the 1880s that prohibits tribal citizens from marrying uh, African Americans uh, on the pain of being expelled from the reservation if they do that. Um, the Pamunkeys end up creating this racial barrier to tribal citizenship um, and end up adopting quite negative, even racist attitudes towards African Americans as part of their strategy to preserve this Indian identity and, and, and that, in that process preserve their reservation lands in Virginia. 
And as you said um, a few minutes ago, they also did not have federal recognition until well into the, the 21st century, pretty pretty recently. What, yeah. what was the story of their, their kind of quest to gain recognition? Yeah, so it was a re- it's a really long process. So they, they you know, as I mentioned, they had, they had been a state-recognized tribe, um, and so they had the state reservation, um, and they were constantly, you know, trying to make sure that the state would continue to recognize them. Uh, they first began to seek federal recognition, actually, um, in, in the, uh, the 1930s. So in the 1930s, um, uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt appoints John Collier as the Commissioner of Indian Affairs. John Collier is, is, is much more pro-Indian rights than, than his, his predecessors had been. And he provides tribes with an opportunity to reorganize, to adopt new tribal constitutions. And so um, some, some of the Pamunkey's allies inquire whether maybe the Pamunkey's can, can gain federal recognition in that time period. But at the time, the Assistant Commissioner of Indian Affairs says, well, we don't really want to, they, they, don't, they don't seem like they're going to qualify, so we don't want to do it. Uh, so the Pamunkey's don't have that opportunity then. Uh, then, beginning in the 1970s, the, the federal government institutes this new uh, federal recognition uh, uh, process whereby tribes that are not recognized um, by the federal government can apply for recognition, fulfilling um, a, a variety of different, uh, different criteria to gain that federal recognition. And so the Pamunkeys, uh, very soon after that, do put in an application um, for federal recognition. Uh, but it's a very slow-moving process, and so it takes uh, years, it takes decades before their application finally begins to be processed. They have to compile all this historical proof of their identity and their community and the, sort of the political persistence of that community. Um, and then they sort of get, they gain sort of provisional uh, acceptance as a federal recognized tribe, um, I think around 2012. But then a number of political enemies of the tribe, including uh, uh, MGM, a casino giant that has a complex, a casino complex in Maryland. They're afraid that the monkeys, if they gain recognition, will build a casino and be competition. Uh, And then there are anti-casinos as well that are afraid that this will set a a precedent whereby, you know, unrecognized tribes will will gain recognition and build casinos. And so they try to attack the identity of the monkeys and prevent them from getting recognition. Uh, finally, though, the Pamunkeys are, are able to prevail, um, and they have such you know, strong documentation of their existence as a tribal community um, that they, they do eventually gain um, federal recognition through the federal recognition process and in 2016. So, so right <laughs> just a few months before my book was published, um, they, huh. did, they did gain federal recognition. The Catawbas of what is today South Carolina, they have a, a somewhat similar story in that they also attempted to distance themselves socially from African Americans in American society at the end of the 19th and early 20th centuries. Although after that, their story takes what was, for me, a pretty surprising turn. Um, tell us about Mormonism and the Catawbas. Yeah, no, it is a, it is sort of an interesting, uh, surprising turn. So um, the Catawbas, they're, they're a small tribe um, in South Carolina. Um, they had, um, again, they were, like the Pamunkeys, were not federally recognized, but did have state recognition because they had formed uh, treaties with the state of South Carolina uh, or the colony of South Carolina, and then that persisted into a relationship with the state of South Carolina. Um, during the removal era, they had ceded a lot of their territory to the state uh, in the Treaty of Nation Ford, um, and then had received, in compensation for the land that they ceded, small annuity payments um, from the state, as well as a small uh, reservation in the north part of South Carolina. Um, so they lived on the small reservation, about 630 acres, and they received these annual uh, small payments from the state of South Carolina. Um, in the 1880s, uh, some Mormon missionaries come to their area, and those missionaries were actually interested in converting the white population, um, but had a chance meeting with uh, Catawbas at Rock Hill, South Carolina. 
And so the Mormons end up sort of redirecting their attention and focusing on the Catawbas. Um, now, the Mormons at the time um, held the belief that uh, that American Indians were um, were members of a lost tribe of Israel, the Lamanites. And so they thought that they had sort of a special position in, in sort of this religious history. And so they told the Catawbas of this story that they were they were actually members of this lost tribe of Israel. And and the Catawbas really responded to that. They, you know, they had faced a lot of uh, discrimination and prejudice from local whites um, within South Carolina. Uh, you know, they they were they had their you know their history denigrated by local whites and so the mormons offering this this alternative story this idea that they they were part of this larger religious mission and story um that appealed to to the Catawbas, and many of them end up converting to mormonism um in in the 1880s 1890s in fact about 90 to 95% of the tribe converts to mormonism but then what's interesting about the story is that uh the, those mormon missionaries they also encourage um, Catawba families to migrate west to some of the Mormon settlements out in the west in places like Utah and Colorado um, <clears throat> and other western states. And so a number of Catawbas uh, do that. They, they, they take up this, this offer to go out west and, and continue their, their religious education and to help form these Mormon communities. <clears throat> and they leave South Carolina. Um, but when they leave South Carolina, this raises all sorts of questions. Well, are they still entitled to a share of state annuities? annuity payments, those small small payments that the state of South Carolina had been paying to tribal citizens, uh, were they still entitled uh, to, to recognition as tribal citizens? And and so at first, they, they do continue to receive their, their payments from the state, but eventually the state of South Carolina says, wait a minute, we don't want to pay people who are not residents of our state. And then also, interestingly, the, the, the Catawbas in South Carolina are also opposed to the Western Catawbas getting those state payments. They feel that you know, if you're going to be part of the community, if you're going to be, you know, you have to be on the reservation. You have to be in South Carolina in order to participate in the tribe's uh, sort of, uh, you know, financial uh, financial system, economic system. So uh, the decision to exclude the Western Catawbas is not only coming from um, the state of Car- South Carolina, but it's also coming from the South Car- Carolina Catawbas themselves. The concept of blood quantum has been deployed pretty regularly, uh, pretty routinely by American and other settler colonial states throughout history. And the idea is a particularly salient one in the history that you tell of the Mississippi Choctaw. Um, why were competing ideas about this, this kind of racialized blood so central to their story? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. Um, blood quantum, it's, 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 a, it's a tricky concept, and it's one that scholars have grappled with for, for a number of years. Um, it's, it's, it's very much sort of uh, centered, central to how race is defined in America. Um, and we know, scholars know, that race is something that it's not a biological reality. It's something that's socially constructed. Um, and But it's constructed differently for different populations based on the needs and desires of um, of the dominant white population. So we know that, like, in the, in the 19th century, uh, white Americans used uh, ideas of hypodescent to define African American identity. The idea that you know it didn't matter how, you know how little African blood you had, if you had any African ancestry, you were you were going to be considered black. But they do the exact opposite for Native Americans, and they say that Native American um, blood can be fractionated; it can be divided until ultimately Native Americans can be defined out of existence through intermarriage. And this is done sort of strategically. You, you know, at the time in, in the 19th century, you know, white slave owners they want more African slaves, so hypo descent helps to create a, a larger slave population. Um, but this idea of fractionated blood helps to reduce 
at least legally, the, the Native American population, which is which is also you know, strategic on the part of whites because they want access to, to, to Indian land. And so by reducing how many Indians there are, you have more access to that land. And so uh, the federal government also began to use blood quantum um, to judge uh, the competency of Indians during the allotment era. The allotment era begins in 18, 1887 with the General Allotment Act. It's an effort on the part of the federal government to break up Indian reservations, divide that land up, and to transform uh, Indians from tribal citizens into American citizens um, through destroying sort of the tribal uh, the tribal land base and also destroying tribal governments. Um, in that process, uh, Indians who are granted allotment, um, they're they're not granted fee simple to that land right away. They're supposed to undergo this period of a, a 25 year um, a 25 year year period when that land is held in trust by the federal government. But an exception is made, so Indians who are judged to be competent are allowed to get that land in fee simple earlier. And the way that the government ends up judging competency is through blood. So they say that the more white blood you have the more civilized you are, the more competent you are in these sort of racial conceptions of the time. And so the government is using these concepts of blood to define Indian identity, to define who's competent, who's incompetent in, in the late 19th and early 20th century. But what's interesting is that although scholars uh, in the past tended to see blood quantum as something that was solely imposed from the outside and sort of imposed on Indian tribes, um, more recently, and, and, and my research supports this, is that um, tribes like the Choctaws in Mississippi, end up adopting and use, using blood quantum for their own purposes. So it's not something that's solely imposed from the outside, but it's something that's also sort of internally adopted, adapted, and manipulated um, to, to serve per, like the purposes of, of tribes. And so the Mississippi Choctaws, they end up recognizing that the federal government equates uh, so-called full blood uh, Indian identity with tribal legitimacy. So the, the higher your blood degree, the, the more likely the government is to see you as legitimately Indian. And so they start to use this language of blood uh, to claim a tribal identity for themselves and to distinguish their claims of being legitimately Indian um, and, and their claims to having you know, rights to land and resources in Mississippi from the claims of people whom they consider to be frauds or pretenders. So it's a way of sort of distinguishing themselves from people who they do not consider to be legitimately Choctaw. And so blood in this way becomes a, a tool of, of nation building for the Mississippi Choctaw. Right. And you call that chapter uh, Learning the Language of Blood, which I thought was a good evocative title. It really gets at what you're saying about this group of people learning how to, you know, use blood and the idea of blood in a certain way that suits their interests as a people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is a process. So so they kind of first are, are taught the language of blood um, when they're, they're applying for citizenship in the Choctaw Nation in, in the West. So the Choctaw Nation had been removed from Mississippi in the early 1830s. Uh, the Mississippi Choctaws are, uh, you know, a, a small remnant population of that tribe that manages to stay in Mississippi. Uh, according to the terms of the treaty, they were supposed to still be entitled to Choctaw Nation citizenship despite remaining in Mississippi. This all comes to a head in the 1880s after the General Allotment Act is passed, um, and then after the Curtis Act is passed in the 1890s, um, allotting Choctaw Nation land in the West. And so there's this question that comes up, are, you know, which Mississippi Choctaws are entitled to an allotment out in Indian Territory? Um, and what ends up happening is the government um, ends up using this idea of blood to determine you know, which Mississippi Choctaws are entitled to Choctaw Nation identity. And so they, that, that's the process through which they learn this language of blood. The Mississippi Choctaws are exposed to this idea that, oh, the government's going to think of us as legitimate if we, have, if we claim to be full blood. And so then after a number of Mississippi Choctaws uh, end up not 
gaining um, gaining citizenship in the Choctaw Nation. They they end up being denied that citizenship for for residency reasons, essentially because they they don't move out um, to Oklahoma. Um, so they, they lose their citizenship in the Choctaw Nation, but then because they've learned how to use that language of blood, they apply that language to, re- to reconstructing a new tribal identity for themselves in Mississippi. And so they end up creating a new tribe, Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians, which is separate from the Choctaw Nation in the West. Um, but they do that through using that language of blood. Moving back east out of Mississippi, you describe how in the yeah. in the aftermath of the Indian Removal Act um, and the, the bloody results of that act during the 1830s, many Cherokees actually remained behind in North Carolina um, in, in the aftermath, again, of the Indian Removal Act. How did these people develop, after the fact, develop a particular identity? And how did they use the boundaries of that identity as a weapon for enforcing sovereignty, particularly over their, uh, their resource, resource base, excuse me, in North Carolina? Yeah, great. Yeah, so the Mississippi Choctaw, or sorry, the Eastern Band of Cherokees uh, have a somewhat similar story um, to the Mississippi Choctaws in that they are a a remnant population of a removed tribe. So the Cherokee Nation is removed um, in the 1830s out to what uh, what is now Oklahoma at the time was Indian Territory. Um, But a certain uh, group of of Cherokees manages to stay in the East, and they do that by uh, relying on earlier treaties made in the 18-teens that had promised certain Cherokees allotments within North Carolina. Uh, what ends up happening is the government of North Carolina erroneously deprives them of those allotments, but gives them the right to repurchase other lands in, in what become in, in what was in Western uh, North Carolina. Uh, these lands, um, they, they start to buy up these lands in the 1840s, 1850s, and they eventually recreate um, a land base, which becomes known as the Koala Boundary. And they gain legal, uh, they gain legal title to that land base in a court decision in uh, 1874. So at that point, the, the Eastern Band of Cherokees, they have they have a new reservation, they have a new land base. They also gain federal recognition um, in 1868. And so at that point, they are a separate tribe um, from the, the Cherokee Nation in, in the West. But although you know they had this legal status and although they had this land base, they are sort of constantly uh, beset by by trespassers on their land in, in Western North Carolina. So there are constantly people coming onto the onto the Koala boundary, uh, cutting timber, uh, farming, uh, renting the land, but refusing to pay the rent. And so the Cherokees are very very vigilant and and, and afraid of, of of these people who are, are are you know claiming access to their resources. And a number of the people who are, are who are doing this are doing so in part by claiming that they too are Cherokee. Um, uh, the, the core Cherokee community disputed these claims. They said that a lot of these people, you know, they, they were using family stories of Cherokee heritage um, that were maybe not uh, legitimate claims, um, and, and but were then using those claims um, to, again, assert tribal citizenship and assert a right to tribal resources. So a lot of uh, Cherokee decisions about citizenship that were made in the late 19th and early 20th centuries were based on this this effort to protect their resources from people who they did not consider to be legitimately Cherokee. And they they referred to these people as being uh, so-called white Indians. So they were, in their minds, they were really white people just pretending to be be Cherokee. Maybe they had very distant Cherokee ancestry, but they were not considered uh, legitimate tribal citizens by the core Cherokee community. Um, so to, to try and pre- prevent this, to try and protect their land base from, from people they did not consider legitimate tribal citizens, uh, the Eastern Band of Cherokee actually um, does adopt blood quantum restrictions. And this is not something that's imposed by the state or the federal government. This is something that the tribe itself decides to adopt. Um, I mean, obviously, they're using the language of blood, again, because they're like Mississippi Choctaw, they're employing that from or federal definitions of that term, but then they're using it themselves to protect their land base. And so they actually adopt this uh, 116th blood quantum restriction to tribal citizenship as a strategy, again, to try to protect their land and resources 
from people who they do not consider to be legitimately Cherokee. It's a really good concrete example of the the central conceit of the book, which is that Native Americanness as a racial identity has these really critical um, political implications as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. That that, that these are choices that are being made um, for you know economic and political reasons, um, and, and that race is is not a naturalized concept. It's something that has to be made and remade and constructed, and it sort of depends on the circumstances and the environment. And, and so the Mississippi, uh, the Eastern Band of Cherokees adopts this one sixteenth. Uh, blood quantum restriction. Other tribes established other blood quantum restrictions. So it's, 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 very, it's very much dependent on individual tribes and their unique historical experiences. So, for example, the Mississippi Choctaws end up having a one-half blood quantum uh, requirement. Uh, the Florida Seminoles end up having a one-quarter blood quantum requirement. So there's just different strategies and different ways of using this concept of blood uh, strategically to to um, you know create boundaries of citizenship and to protect um, economic resources from outsiders. And the final example that you give of Native Americans in the South dealing with this question of who belongs is um, the Seminoles, whose land base today is mostly in southern Florida. But as you say, um, and you're, you're quoting someone at the beginning of the chapter who says that the composition of this tribe is particularly complex. Um, what is the history of these people and why is their tribal identity different in certain respects from the other societies that you write about in this book? Yeah, no, that's a they're great great question and their story is 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 very complex and and part of that is that um the Seminoles were not uh indigenous to Florida. They were they were descendants of groups of of Creek Indians who had begun to migrate down to Florida um beginning in the early 1700s um but continuing on uh through the the early 19th century. So there were first are a group of Creeks who sort of were dissatisfied with um the Creek Nation and the growing centralization of the Creek Nation. They go down to Florida to kind of get get away from all that. And then after the Creek Civil War um, from 1813 to 1814, another group of Creeks known as the Red Sticks also migrate down to Florida. And in Florida, they sort of undergo this this process of ethnogenesis and they become this new people, the Seminoles, and they sort of separate their political identity from the Creek Nation by the 1820s. And they become sort of known by the federal government as, as the Seminoles at that point. Um, and then the Seminoles, like other southeastern tribes, undergo um, removal in the 1830s and 40s. The Seminoles actually fight very brutal wars against the United States to try and prevent um, prevent their tribe from being removed from Florida. Um, eventually, um, uh, thousands of Seminoles are forcibly removed, and then this small group of Seminoles manages to, to, to stay in, in Florida, in part by sort of hiding out um, down in the Everglades in the Big Cypress Swamp. Um, but those Seminoles who, who who ended up in South Florida by the late 19th century, they hadn't been there for that long, and so their their process of sort of adapting themselves to this this landscape, this environment, this new situation, it was it, you know they were undergoing this process of adaptation, but it was not necessarily a complete process. It was not uh, it had not been finished, and so their their identity in that period is is somewhat uh, fluid. They don't have a necessarily a very strong sense of of, of tribal identity or national identity in that period. Uh, the organization is, is is looser than that. They they live in these uh, small uh, clan camps, uh, matrilineal clan camps, that are loosely linked together in these band this sort of band organization uh, with certain headmen at the at the at the, the lead of each of these bands. Uh, they are also organized by uh, religious affiliation with these uh, so-called bus groups, um, which are headed by a medicine men who perform uh, the green corn ceremony, or also known as the busk. Um, 
annually at sort of a harvest festival. And so they're linked through you know, religious beliefs, they're linked through matrilineal kinship, they're linked um, through cultural practices and, and language. Actually, there's two different languages in the Seminole speak, uh, Miccosukee and, and Muscogee. Um, but they don't have a strong sort of unified sense of a national identity um, by the late 19th century, which makes their story um, so much more, more complex than the other tribes that do have a, a somewhat more uh, unified sense of tribal identity in this period. And so that kind of uh, complicates how they think about citizenship because they're not only thinking about who belongs to their community, but they're also thinking about, you know, what kind of community do they even want to belong to? And so what ends up happening is that by the mid 20th century, um, uh, the Seminoles split into two distinct uh, tribes, the, the Seminole tribe of Florida and the Miccosukee Band of Indians of Florida. And this is a, a political decision. It's not based on culture or, or language necessarily. So there are Miccosukee and Muscogee speakers. Um, both are, are in the Seminole tribe of Florida, for example. Um, so it's not, they don't split just down linguistic lines or, or, or um, kinship lines. There, there are people who, you know, there's cases of, you know, fathers in one tribe and a son is in the other tribe. This is based on sort of political decisions. So, so the, uh, the, the Seminole tribe of Florida was more um, open to accepting sort of cultural change, more open to accepting um, reservation lands from the federal government in the mid 20th century, whereas the Miccosukee band was uh, less willing to sort of accept some of these, uh, these sort of social cultural changes. And so deciding whether you were going to belong to one tribe or the other was more based on sort of your, your own political identity and what you thought was best for the, for the tribe's future. And so in this way, we see uh, this is sort of a perfect illustration of how tribal citizenship is, is used as a tool of self-determination and also how uh, Indian identity is not a racial or ethnic identity, but, but really a political identity and in the story of, of the Seminoles where they're making these very you know, active political decisions to belong to one tribe or the other. And my last question for you today is about methodology, um, because you use some unique sources in this book that I'd love to hear you you talk about a little bit. So can you tell us about your source base and why you draw from the materials that you do here? Well, I, I was trained as an ethno-historian, and so by that, um, I mean that um, not only do ethno-historians that we try to use sort of traditional historical sources like government documents or letters, but we also try to uh, balance that with uh, ethnological accounts, anthropological reports, and oral histories. And, and the reason that we do this is to try to get a to get better access or get a better understanding of how Native people themselves uh, uh, experienced um experience their histories, right? So a lot of times the, the documents, the, the sort of traditional historical documents are written by, by white people. And so we only get the outsider's view. But by using uh, ethnological reports and um, oral histories, we're able to get a better uh, sort of perspective on the cultures and backgrounds and ideas and feelings of, of, of the people themselves who we're studying. Um, and so I try to do that in, in, this, in, this, um, in this book, where I do use a lot of government documents. I use, you know, uh, official government created rules and the documentation of, of Indian officials who, who go down to these tribes and report on what they see. Um, but then I also use anthropological accounts, um, you know, anthropologists who visited the tribes in the, the late 19th and early 20th centuries who report onto the culture and background and traditions of these tribes and some of their, um, you know, their, their religious beliefs and, and their kinship practices. And that helps me to understand why tribes are behaving, you know, why Indian peoples are behaving the way they do, they do based on sort of their cultural traditions and their belief systems and their worldviews. And then also, I was really fortunate that there are some really wonderful oral history collections, uh, oral histories that were taken with um, Southeastern tribes. 
um, in the 1970s, in particular, there's a collection called the Samuel Proctor Oral History Collection. Um, it's, it's housed at the University of Florida, but it's actually available online. So it's a, it's a great resource for, for scholars and, and students. Um, but it provides these you know, these numerous oral histories taken with tribal citizens um, in the beginning in the 1970s. And that also kind of helped me um, to, to understand how Native people themselves were thinking about about their histories and about their traditions. And a lot of those are, you know, stories that were passed on. They tell, they talk of, you know, family stories from the, from the early 20th century or the, even the late 19th century. And so it, get, it gives me a, a window on some of those Native experiences of, of their own identity and their own um, history and ideas of citizenship. Yeah, you do a really good job of triangulating the perspectives in this book. It's really apparent reading through it. And there's also, um, there's a lot of really good images in uh, Who Belongs as well. Where did you find, what archives did you use to get at some of these really evocative pictures? Yeah, no, I, mean, I guess that's one really great advantage of, of working in, um, you know, 20th century history is that we huh. do have access to photographs in a way that we yeah. that we wouldn't uh, working on earlier periods. But um, I'm really fortunate that the, the National Anthropological Archives um, in particular has uh, a wealth of, uh, of photographs of, of tribes um, from across the country, but, but especially for my purposes of southeastern tribes from this period. And a lot of times those images were taken by um, anthropologists who were visiting the tribes and conducting, you know, ethnological investigations. And so James Mooney, for example, who was an anthropologist who spent a lot of time among Eastern Band of Cherokees, he took some photographs in the late 19th century. Um, so I was able to, to get access to those photographs, the National Anthropological Archives. Um, and then uh, actually the uh, Florida State Archives has a number of photographs um, sort of uh, from their Florida history collections. And these, again, a lot of them are taken by, by anthropologists uh, as well as photographers who went down to, to document, you know, Southern Florida life in, in the early 20th century. And so a number of pictures from the sem- of the Seminoles are, are, are taken from, from that, uh, you know, the state archives of Florida. And those are actually available online. So that's, a, you know, it's a great resource, again, for students to, to go and look at some of those images. Um, you can just, you know, Google search the Florida State Archives and, and look through their image collections. But, um, yeah, so, the, so it's a, it's, Great to have that as a resource because it does, you know, it helps to personalize um, some of the stories that that I they found in, in, in the archives and, and in the documents and to put faces to names was was very exciting and, and during the research process. So now that this wonderful book is out and available, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're working on next? Do you have a second project in mind? Yes, I do. Um, I'm I'm just starting it, so it's it's very and very much in the the early stages so far. So I'm just kind of uh, conceptualizing it still, but um, my second project will be on the influenza pandemic of 1918-1919 in Indian countries. So looking at how this massive worldwide pandemic that ends up killing about 50 million people globally uh, ends, uh, uh, has effects on, on Native communities, both on reservations and also in boarding schools um, in this period of the early 20th century. Um, so uh, we know from from certain government records that Native populations in the United States were particularly hard hit by the flu. Um, about two percent of the Native population died during the epidemic, so quite a quite a large portion of the Native population. Um, this was a moment of sort of transition in, in American medical history. Uh, it was a moment where the germ theory of disease had, had been discovered in the 1880s. Uh, American physicians were beginning to accept and, and use germ theory and, and, and become sort of medical, better medical scientists uh, and, and get better medical and scientific training. But um, the general public was still not always fully accepting of germ theory. Um, 
And even though they had this theory of disease, uh, they didn't have treatments. And, and so flu, the flu is a virus and there, there was no, and still is no sort of effective treatment for viruses. So, so even though, you know, medical science was becoming more modern, more professional in this time period, uh, doctors were really at a loss to explain or to treat the flu in this period. Um, so it's interesting as this moment of medical transition and then how Native peoples are then maybe uh, responding to the flu uh, using their own uh, new theories of medicine, their own, own ideals of uh, sickness and healing. And so I, I hope this project will kind of provide a window on on some of the ways that Native people are responding medically, uh, their engagement with, you know, so-called modern medicine, um, also ideas about um Native bodies, Native health in general, this is a time period when uh, many Americans ascribed to this idea that Indians were uh, a vanishing race, that they were going to disappear from American history. Um, and so, you know, when the flu hits and, and Native people are dying uh, disproportionately, that, that kind of feeds into that that narrative of, of decline. And so I'm, I'm interested to see how that, that narrative affects uh, native access to health care and the kind of tr- treatment that, that uh, government officials are willing to give uh, Native peoples. And then I'm interested in seeing how this uh, perhaps affects the, the federal tribal relationship. So uh, technically, the federal government has responsibilities to Indian peoples. Uh, they're wards of the federal government, especially has responsibilities to, to Indian children and boarding schools. So the flu provides a window on, on how well the government is living up to its responsibilities uh, t- towards Indian people. So that's that's kind of where I see the, the project going, and, and we'll see how it develops over the coming years. That sounds like a great project. I was actually just teaching about the 1918 pandemic uh, in one of my classes this morning, and the students did not know very much about it. So at least in that small sample size, it sounds uh-huh. like something that you know people should know more about, um, let alone whether they know anything about its effects on Native American populations. So it sounds like you're onto something there, in my personal opinion. <laughs> Thank you. I hope so. <laughs> Um, Well, Michaela, thanks for joining us. Michaela Adams is an assistant professor of history at the University of Mississippi and is the author of Who Belongs? Race, Resources, and Tribal Sovereignty in the Native South, which came out with Oxford University Press in 2016. Michaela, thanks again for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed talking to you. Bye-bye. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.